Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Pepys, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Adrian Parr, Dean of the College of Design at the University of Oregon and a senior fellow with the Design Futures Council. Prior to coming to the UO in March, 2021, Parr was the Dean of the College of Architecture, Planning and Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Arlington. From 2013 to 2021, she served as UNESCO Chair on Water and Human Settlements. Parr is a transdisciplinary scholar working at the intersection of architecture, criticism, architecture, criticism, aesthetics, political theory, and environmental studies. She's the author of numerous books, including The Wrath of Capital, Neoliberalism and Climate Change Politics, Birth of a New Earth, The Radical Politics of Environmentalism, and the forthcoming Earthlings, Imaginative Encounters with the Natural World. She's published op-eds in the LA Review of Books, Al Jazeera, the World Financial Review, and the European Magazine. She is also a public speaker, community organizer, and filmmaker. Thanks, Adrian, for coming on the show. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me, Paul. Tell us first a little bit about your background. Uh, I think our viewers will already detect that you, you are not from the United States originally. Tell us a little bit about where you're from and, and uh, how you got to where you are. That accent still lingers on, doesn't it? <laughs> I've been in the U.S. for 18 years now, I think, and it, it, it's, it's stuck fast. So, um, yeah, I grew up in Australia. I grew up in Sydney, um, and uh, my family lived in the, the heart of Sydney. Um, and on the weekends, uh, I would spend my weekends exploring the wilderness of the Blue Mountains. Um, I'm an only child. Uh, my father's a, a contemporary artist, Mike Parr, and he uh, is involved in sort of performance art and installation works and uh, sculpture. So he's sort of mixed media artist. Um, my mother um, works very closely alongside him. And it was sort of like a family production of sorts, really, um, growing up as a kid, because he has one arm. And uh, so often we were brought into the studio to, to help facilitate some of the sculptural projects that he needed an extra hand on. And uh, my aunt uh, is Julie Rapp. She's also a contemporary artist, Rapp being par, spelled backwards. Um, and she works a lot in sort of photography and installation work, dealing with issues around sort of, I suppose, femininity of the body, the appearance of the female body through the history of art as, as just some examples. Um, I went to school in Vienna for nearly a year, I think it was, when I was 10. Uh, my family went back and forth between Europe and Australia a lot as I was growing up. Uh, Dad was showing in various exhibitions there. Um, so I got to be exposed to some really interesting people as a child, sitting at the dinner table with, you know, performance artists like Marina Abramovich and, and Ule. I remember them very well when they were still doing their performances together. So I was very much immersed in sort of contemporary cultural production. Um, my father's work is very sort of political. Uh, so I think really that that's what sparked by interest in activism as a whole. Uh, it certainly comes from those influences. So your, your interests um, are eclectic. So I'm curious, what, what led to this conjunction of interest between philosophy, aesthetic theory, and environmentalism? Well, I think the philosophy part of things is the sort of intellectual part of my being. 
and then the interest in aesthetics and also now making movies and I've recently curated an exhibition uh, at, the, at the European Cultural Centre's Venice Architecture Biennale. That's the sort of creative practice side of things. Um, and then the third piece with environmentalism, that's the activist side of me. So those three fields working in and out of them together really um, massages all those parts of uh, what motivates me to get up in the morning. <laughs> So let's start talking about um, your various books. First, let's begin with the 2013 monograph, The Wrath of Capital, Neoliberalism and Climate Change Politics. Can you just give us a quick thumbnail sketch of the project of that book? So uh, that book, if I remember correctly, it came out in 2013, if, if that's sort of, <laughs> it seems like a long time ago now, gosh, our time flies. But it's actually the middle book of a trilogy. So the first book was Hijacking Sustainability of that trilogy with MIT Press. And that was uh, maybe 2008 I was writing that. I think it came out in 2009. Um, and so Hijacking Sustainability was really a book of, you know, about the culture of sustainability, sustainability culture, so to speak, and the co-optation of sustainability culture and looking at issues around greenwashing, for example. Um, and some of the questions that emerged out of, of that book were what led to the writing of The Wrath of Capital, which was very much a book that was a, of socioeconomic theory um, that then led into the final book, which was Birth of a New Earth. And that was more a book of sort of political theory, I would say. So your, to your question on The Wrath of Capital, I really, I mean, I took as my sort of point of departure um, the very simple idea of, of Marx that capital is not a thing, it's a process. And as a process, it works through capital ac accumulation. And capital accumulation also in turn works by appropriating the limits that are presented to capital. So for example, the climate crisis or environmental degradation could both be examples of very real concrete limits that are being presented to that process of capital accumulation. Um, and so in, in thinking about that sort of idea, I inevitably moved into the terrain of you know, environmentalism being a kind of discourse, right? And who has the power to harness that discourse and how do they harness that discourse? And that that in turn influences how we think about and shape and pose the question of what to do uh, to address the climate crisis and environmental degradation as a whole. Um, and so with that, I, I, I moved through a sort of variety of, of examples and really ended up with a sort of scathing critique, I suppose, of neoliberal economics and neoliberal solutions to the climate crisis. For example, this idea of, you know, that the free market is one way to solve the, the climate crisis, arguing that the free market is actually the reason one of the big reasons why we're in this mess in the first place, right? That the, the social has been sort of um, sacrificed along the way, things like social safety nets and so on and so forth. And that this is a collective problem and it needs more collectivist impulses and principles um, if we're really gonna uh, grapple uh, with this gargantuan problem that we're presented with and which is being discussed, I think, as we speak in Glasgow at the moment, right? So would you tell us a little bit about the third book in the trilogy, Birth of a New Earth, The Radical Politics of Environmentalism? 
So I think I mentioned before that Birth of a New Earth was the third in that trilogy, and it was a book of um, political theory. Um, and with that book, I start with this idea that there's this, that, you know, for example, with climate change, that we're going to be encountering, all the while recognising that obviously, you know, uh, communities around the world that are, are more impoverished, um, communities of colour are certainly going to be more disadvantaged in terms of the, the sorts of uh, harms that they experience as the climate continues to change. And, and they have also historically been the communities that have been uh, at, at, at a greater disadvantage. But that aside for a moment, we've got to at least collectively recognise that we're all going to have a shared experience of hardship. And so it's in that shared experience of hardship, I think, where a politics begins to emerge. Because if we can recognise that that's a, a collective problem, that means that it's necessarily also one that's a political problem. And as a political problem, I think that can be a very useful point of departure for trying to come up with what I call sort of transversal political uh, responses and solutions. In Birth of a New Earth, I'm also arguing for a transversal form of uh, political governance, right? And I and I think actually in the New York Times interview with me, I even called it bastard solidarities. And so what I'm talking about there is that there, there tend to be two camps about how we deal with these sort of collective problems. One is, you know, uh, whether it's a, a more top-down solution right, or a more bottom-up horizontal kind of grassroots solution. And as a result of some of the work that I've been involved with, say, at, at the level of the United Nations and UN Habitat and those sorts of international organisations, I have a deep appreciation for some of those top-down solutions, right, that we need to be able to sort of, for example, introduce regulatory mechanisms. At the same time, you know, it's the grassroots that enables these things to sort of be accepted and adopted in a more sort of horizontal widespread way but we don't want those two things necessarily to be in opposition to one another so maybe we need to be thinking in a more transversalist way where they can help they hold each other more and more accountable moving forward so it's it's neither you know the vertical or the horizontal plane it's the transversal plane that um that i'm emphasizing in that book moreover uh, towards the end of a the a birth of a new earth, I'm also looking at the role of imagination, um, the role of imagination in its utopian potential. And so the way I use utopianism in this book is more in alignment with Frederick Jamson's work on utopia, utopia as form and not content. So the idea that the utopia as a form is something that functions as a, as a sort of device of critical realism in a sense on the present so futurity what we might become in the future is less about coming up with a sort of a universalist vision of what perfection constitutes but it functions as a point of critique for the present um, and then i also then go on to form a distinction between you know uh, what i call apocalyptic imagination and an emancipatory imagination. So, you know, this is sort of in 
influenced by thinking in you know psycho psychoanalysis that imagination in and of itself is not inherently emancipatory we can imagine all kinds of horrible scenarios right um and that i'm also arguing with an apocalyptic imagination that a lot of how we think about the environmental crisis and i look at blockbuster movies and so on and so forth is in these is through a sort of an apocalyptic lens but that can just sort of freeze us or it can also function as a displacement activity one where we're sort of just consumed through entertainment right uh, all the you know uh, all the pleasures that come along with you know that that kind of way of dealing with the crisis so I'm saying we need to be cognizant of how the imagination is put to work and so this focus on how we you know uh, how we use concepts and, and how we put them to work is actually sort of a, a Deleuzean legacy of mine. I spent many, many years during my PhD uh, studying Deleuze and my first publication was actually, you know, the Deleuze Dictionary. Um, so imagination, what does imagination look like? How does it function in an emancipatory and an inclusive way? Um, and from here, I start to look at various examples of, you know, for example, the community gardening initiatives in Detroit and Venezuela as, as some examples of that. Yeah. So are, what you just described, is that what's uh, happening in your forthcoming book, Earthlings, Imaginative Encounters with the Natural World? Yes, it is. And um, I'm super excited about this book because it's not, it's like nothing I've ever written before. And it really is the result of, you know, I came out of that trilogy and I thought, gosh, I don't feel like writing anything. I, I, I just didn't want to write anymore. <laughs> and I went into a, a, a much more productive phase, making movies and doing the documentaries. Um, and then COVID hit and everything went into lockdown. And I was living in Dallas, Fort Worth at the time. And I'll never forget you know, it, Dallas is a, a place where you drive in order to go across the street, right? That That's just, it's just, that's the way it is. And all of a sudden, the sounds of traffic and, you know, that hustle and bustle really did stop. And I remember with my husband and kids getting out, walking to the park together, and we'd always walk to the park, but it was always a, a rather sort of dramatic journey across the, the streets where there were no footpaths and no traffic lights and whatnot. And all of a sudden when COVID hit, all these people were walking out and about all around the neighbourhood. It was really amazing, right? And I, I remember saying to him, like, we actually have neighbours. Like, I never even knew we had neighbours. And so there was this sort of sense of, um, it was sort of, how can I explain it? I just felt so sort of sensitised to the world around me. And all of a sudden, I thought, I want to write a book that's about this, the, the transformative protect, uh, sort of potential of these affective encounters, the ability to be affected by people being out and about, the sounds of the city changing, the birds coming out, the other kinds of sounds that were being able to be audible again, that weren't, weren't audible before. So what has now become audible and visible and what was previously inaudible and invisible? Right. And all of this was happening at a time with, you know, a virus that was spreading and it's invisible in many ways. But, you know, the, the visible residues of what was happening to bodies and, you know, the people that were dying from that um, 
produced this sort of highly sensitized moment. And so I sat down and I wrote Earthlings probably about a month. It just, I had no trouble at all. It just came to me. And uh, I say it was different like any other book because I think all the other books, there's always been this struggle going on while I'm writing it. It's, it's the theory, it's the science, and it's, you know, it's so heady, right? And I, I wrote, my editor had contacted me from Columbia asking me if I'd be interested in writing something else. And I said, I don't really want to write theory. And if I'm going to write anything, you're going to have to agree to let me write this. And she loved the idea because I said, you know, I want this to be a sort of mix of storytelling and poetry as well as theory and, you know, the science side of the equation. And I want to blend all these sort of voices um, to produce uh, a kind of affective sort of philosophy, a philosophy of affect that's not about writing about affect that is in and of itself taking that on as part of the sort of method of writing. So the book is you know, uh, what was fun about it is I, I imagined myself in the bodies of these other species. So it starts off as a big sequoia tree and I am the sequoia tree. And I'm trying to kind of feel all the things that are happening on and through that sequoia tree as these changes are happening throughout the forest. And then it sort of goes down onto the, the ground of the forest and all the life that's happening there is the sort of trunk that's been cut down begins to sort of decay, right? Um, and so it moves through all these different bodies. That's really kind of what shapes earthlings. I move into the body of an Arctic tern as it migrates from the south to the to the north uh, it's it's an animal that has one of the longest migratory paths in the world uh, i enter the body of astronauts as they go into outer space and look back at the earth um, I enter the sort of, I have these sorts of anecdotal memories too as a kid growing up in Sydney and floating in the ocean. And I sort of, I share that memory um, with, with the reader. And then that transports us through the ocean into the corals that are bleaching up on the northern part of Australia off, off the coast of Queensland. And then into the bodies of whales whose, you know, migratory uh, paths are being changed and their reproductive um, cycles, not cycles, but their sort of reproductive capabilities are, are changing as a result of sort of noise pollution. So it, it's moving through all these different sort of landscapes of feeling and sensation. Um, and as, as, as I'm doing that, I'm also sort of leaning into human myth and you know, climate science and environmental science to sort of deepen uh, that that sort of discussion and series of descriptions. Um, and the poetry side of things uh, is also a residue of, of having a, uh, been the person at the uh, University of Cincinnati and in the city of Cincinnati, I brought Louder Than a Bomb from Chicago to Cincinnati. And so I'd been really actively involved for three years um, in establishing that Louder Than a Bomb chapter in Cincinnati. And so I'd been also very heavily involved in uh, the workshops around the spoken word and, and the competition for that. So that reappears in the book again, yeah. Sounds like a completely fascinating book and uh, really exciting. We're looking forward to its publication. I'm gonna shift gears a little now and talk to you about your job as the Dean of the College of Design at the University of Oregon. So what attracted to you to the University of Oregon and our College of Design? 
So I wasn't looking for another position. I was uh, pretty happy in Dallas and uh, you know, I loved the institution, University of Texas at Arlington where I was working, had started making friends in the environmental community there, which I, I was pleasantly surprised to find that there were quite, quite, there was quite a community of environmentalists in Texas, uh, which broke with the stereotype of Texas. Um, but then when the search firm reached out to me about this opportunity, uh, well, my husband's an alum of the University of Oregon. Uh, we've been here in and out of this area a lot. Uh, we have family all throughout this area. And myself personally and professionally, a lot of the faculty whose work I've um, lent on throughout my journey as a faculty member have come from the University of Oregon. And the university as a whole has this incredible legacy of environmentalism. And I was just super excited about, you know, the possibility and the honor of really being able to, to join this particular academic community um, and to be in a leadership role where I would get to advocate for many of those faculty um, who have inspired me throughout the years. Uh, part of being, I think, a good dean is understanding that you're in service to your faculty and students and that the leadership and the staff are there to help support that and advance that as much as they can. And part of that is believing in the people that you're there to represent and advocate for. So um, yeah, I was super excited at the opportunity and delighted when I got that call from Patrick that uh, they would like me to come and to join the community. So here we are. <laughs> That's wonderful to have you. Can you tell us some of your immediate goals or your, for the college? Immediate goals? Well, the first one would be uh, exploring a, a new transdisciplinary undergraduate degree uh, that capitalizes both on the, that legacy of environmentalism that I was telling you about, and also design excellence and planning in the college. How do we craft a degree that really, you know, capitalizes upon all those incredible strengths to produce something that's a really enriching and rewarding um, experience for future students and one that also uh, functions in a way that sets students up to go out into the world and be change makers in the world and I think you know all the programs that we have on offer here whilst they're you know in their separate sort of departments so to speak um, also have incredible synergies across them and so how do we work with those synergies and create new uh, exciting degree, degree plans so that's one of the big things on my agenda and I also think a degree in this way uh, the way that I'm thinking of it with my faculty and leadership is one that would support the provost's environment initiative which I'm really passionate about I think it's the perfect thing for this institution it's what we've been doing for a long time and um, putting the the university leadership behind that um, is, is an important step in the right direction. And I would like to see how we can be good citizens on campus and uh, work to, to help advance that initiative as well. I know your own work uh, uh, component of it, which you've spoken about is your activist component, your engagement. And you something about what you just said about your goals for this transdisciplinary program uh, says something about your commitment to engaged humanities work, engaged scholarship, engaged teaching. Can you say something about your vision for the um, increasing the engagement of the students and faculty in the College of Design with the communities of Eugene on the one hand and Portland on the other? Yeah, I think, I mean, as I, I, I'm, I'm been here eight months now um, and 
a large whack of that was still kind of COVID intense. Uh, it was a, a strange moment to, to start a deanship <laughs> during COVID. I remember at one point saying, is this real? Like <laughs> everybody's on a screen. I hope, I hope this is a real job. No, but uh, so I'm still sort of learning about the relationship between Portland and Eugene. Uh, I do go up to Portland on a regular basis and I now have an office uh, on that campus so that I spend time learning more about our activities there. Um, but I think I'd be interested in sort of figuring out ways in which we can have more collaborations between the two campuses. Uh, architecture at the moment is piloting this really interesting um, well, test case class where the students in Portland and the students here in Eugene in the same class are enrolled together and taking class together at the same time using new technologies. Um, so this sort of hybrid format so that, uh, you know, we can have this shared experience across the two campuses. Um, I'm excited to see what uh, the student evaluations are of that and what their suggestions are for the ways in which we can improve that experience for them. Um, I also think there are incredibly, you know, fruitful research opportunities that we could have, uh, both in terms of, you know, Portland being, I think it's 600,000 people in Portland, if I remember correctly, as a city, and Eugene is probably more like 180,000, something like that, give or take. Um, but they're both urban environments at very different scales. So I think there's some really interesting work to be done about that around issues of sustainable design. And then you've got this stretch between that is, you know, rural communities and um, thinking about the way in which cities grow. And sometimes those rural communities become increasingly absorbed into the fabric of urban growth. Um, so there's a lot there for us to sort of capitalize upon and think about in pragmatic ways, but it's gonna require collaboration, more collaboration across the campuses. Can you tell us a little bit about your Dean's Equity and Inclusion Initiative? Ah, so it's not just mine. It was the result of um, a collaboration between five deans and really it's the, the brainchild of Phaser Way. Uh, she received a Mellon grant uh, to, to do this work. She comes out of the University of Washington and she's now in Dunbar Oaks Harvard um, campus in uh, uh, um, DC, I think it is. Um, and she reached out to, I think, five of us once when the uh, murder of George Floyd happened to try to understand, and she, it was sort of research phase, what deans of architecture schools could be doing um, to further advance and deepen diversity, equity, and inclusion, both within the, the curriculum, uh, the part of the student experience, um, and also in terms of recognizing that when they come out of our professional programs, they go into practice. And the, the professions are very much looking to us to try to understand how they in turn can diversify their practices. Um, so that group, we, we met regularly and we decided that uh, we would actually use the Spatial Justice Fellows Program. We have a Spatial Justice Fellows Program here that uh, was uh, one of the things that I was really interested in when I came here. Um, to do that uh, as a sort of summer workshop series for junior faculty of colour um, and to 
provide them with a mentorship program uh, moving forward, recognizing that their success within higher ed is connected to you know, diversifying the curriculum, student success, uh, being able to recruit a more diverse student body and in turn diversifying the profession further on down the line. And I'm thrilled to announce we had the first uh, workshop last summer. It was really successful. We had one of our fellows present and each one of the other institutions did as well. And it's now gained a lot of national traction. Uh, there are 21 uh, deans from uh, architecture schools and design colleges around the country that are now participating in this. So Harvard, Tulane, University of New Mexico, uh, several of the historically back black colleges as well, all uh, participating and we're looking to continue growing um, the group. They've recently appointed me as the executive chair uh, of the leadership chair for, for that group. And our next steps are to figure out uh, if we need to apply for funding to get a better understanding just on baseline data of where we currently are at in architecture schools in terms of diversity. A fascinating, fascinating project and seems extremely timely. Adrian, we're just about at the end of our time. This is going to be my last question. Um, is it possible for you to give me a fairly concise sense of the intimate, rea the intimate realities of water project? Okay, concise. I, you're asking the philosopher to be concise. No, I can be concise. Uh, so it's we've currently completed three phases of it. The first phase was really the launch project, um, and that was the result of four years of work that I did in my capacity as a UNESCO chair, looking at how water shapes the everyday lives of women living in two of the slums in Nairobi, Dagoretti uh, and Kibera. Kibera. And then the second project, which was a documentary film as well, uh, is exploring the water challenges that three Native American communities are facing from climate change and sea level rise with the Biloxi Choctaw Chittimacca tribe in uh, Louisiana, all the way up to the Inupiaq on Sarachev Island off the coast of Alaska, uh, down into the center of the states in the Dakotas with um, the Standing Rock, uh, and in particular, La Donna. The third is the exhibit that I have at the moment at the European Cultural Center Venice Architecture Biennale on watershed urbanism, exploring new uh, design paradigms for urban growth that uh, are much more sensitive to the watersheds on which, which they are situated. And the fourth phase uh, is probably gonna be called Going, Going, Gone, uh, which is really connecting to my work coming out of Earthlings on trans environmentalism, uh, the three trans, trans species, transgenerational and transnational. So more on that to come. Well, uh, amazing, amazing work. It's just been a, such a pleasure to talk to you today, Adrian, and learn all of the things that you have done and are doing. Um, we are just so fortunate to have you as the Dean of the College of Design at the University of Oregon. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. It's been great. Thank you, Paul. It was my pleasure. And I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I've been speaking with Adrian Parr, Dean of the College of Design at the University of Oregon. Thanks so much for watching.